HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. I kind of love this. Uh, bewitched, bothered, and bewildered are we come February. And in February, we get to welcome Kristen Taylor of Saucy Magazine. That's uh, part of the intro of her newest edition, uh, the Valentine. Or is it Black Valentine? It's Black Valentine. Yeah. Even though it has this lovely pink, glossy cover, it is certainly a little dark inside. It's misleadingly <laughs> pink. It's one, you know, the, the wonderful thing about these magazines is that they are never what they seem. Um, you know, and it's not trying to change a perception or trying to trick anybody, but it's just the off on thought. And, uh, uh, that's, I think what drew me to you into this mm-hmm. project itself. But Chris and Taylor, Hello. saucy magazine, there was a long road to get to this point <laughs> in your <laughs> yes. life. So where did it start? Where did, you know, uh, like zines and where did food kind of collide? Hmm. Right. Well, um, my my mother's mother, my maternal grandmother, was the one who taught me how to cook. And the first thing that she taught me was how to make a roux. Yeah. And you know, for those she, that don't know, what is a roux? Right. So you start with with butter, and you let that go. And then um, when it stops sort of fizzing, then you add the flour. And what you're doing is you're cooking the raw out of the flour. But you know, as a 12 year old, you're thinking, what am I doing? <laughs> but it does feel like magic. Yeah, yeah. And it was fun to begin with that because she was really wanting me to begin with sort of classically French. Um, and then what I do now is, is very, very different. Yeah. Um, but, but she taught me that so that we could build the whole meal together around that. So first we made the roux together and then we made the bechamel sauce and then we 
um, we did the asparagus and then we made little crepes and then we put it all together with a little bit of ham and cheese. And, um, and it was very much sort of the height of elegance. And if you were my grandmother, that's exactly what you would want to begin with. Yeah. Because then at 12 years old, I could have thrown a dinner party that she would have thought was totally appropriate. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I love that, you know, a roux itself and the way that you explain making a roux wasn't, you know, one tablespoon, one teaspoon, that there's this more prosy way and approach to how you cook and how you purvey food. Mm-hmm. Um, was it, you know, something that you didn't want, you pushed away against measurements and meters? Did you care about the fantastical side of, you know, food and literature more than you did about the kind of like mathematics of it? That's a good question. So I think for me, I've, I always start with literature. I always start with everything as a text. And for me, it was really about what happens. So not thinking of it as a scientific thing where you do this and it causes this to happen, but in that, as with the roux, when you cook the raw, then all of a sudden it tastes good. You can eat it. Yeah. Um, And that's what you want to happen because you want to serve it to people. Yeah. So roux, bechamel, you know, Mm -hmm. these master sauces. From 12, did your culinary skills grow, or are you still serving the same thing? Uh, I hope that they've grown. We'll see. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I really, you know, I learned very basic things, but I didn't really use it until um, I was getting out of college. And for the first time, I wanted to be an adult. And to me, that meant being able to cook real things for yourself. Yeah. Where um, did you go to college and what for? So I went to Davidson College, and I uh, was in the English department there. Um, and then actually later on have, have a couple more degrees in English because I couldn't get enough, um, from the University of Virginia. Um, but, but by that time it was sort of text and literature, but also computers. So the, the tech had woven itself in, but in college it was very much about how do we analyze things and, and how do we bring things, um, to have some kind of meaning. And that's what I was really looking for. Um, and that's what I, I try to do with food is figure out how do we make meaning out of the ways in which we eat together and don't eat together. Yeah. So, I mean, what was the first or most meaningful meal that you've ever had? Hmm. Wow. Well, so I, I grew up in the Episcopalian Church. And in the Episcopalian Church, the, the story of the loaves and fishes is very important. And... Um, and it, it sort of happened in my own life one time um, when I was uh, a couple of years out of college and um, and my now ex-husband, but but then husband, um, his, his dad had died. And somehow I ended up cooking for everyone. And we were at their, um, their family summer house in, um, in Duxbury, Massachusetts. And I thought I was cooking for maybe 12 people. And I think maybe there were 36 people that showed up. You know, we'd already done the ashes and it was very emotional, but people still need to eat. And, um, and I was cooking in an area that was unfamiliar to me. So I didn't feel like I had the right ingredients. There was nothing that, that I really knew. I didn't know the pots and pans or anything that kind of makes it comfortable in any way where you sort of think, oh, I got this. Um, I, I didn't have that. But somehow there was enough food and people stayed and, and it was really a beautiful, um, a beautiful evening. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, speaking of how you talk about these things, your cause and effect is trying to create an emotion or trying to, you know, have someone feel a certain way Mm -hmm. so whether or not it's using the right pots and pans you know what your means or what your end is right and how to approach that you know not necessarily with culinary deft you know uh, but with a rawness uh, yeah definitely and and so much of my work is thinking about um how can we get more comfortable with the unfamiliar 
um, and how can we grow, you know, sort of the curiosity and cooking that I think we have to have um, as, as home cooks as well as professional cooks. Yeah, so let's talk about the unfamiliar. Because starting a magazine, mm-hmm. you know, as, such as The Saucy, uh, is unfamiliar to a lot of people. And you worked for years, as you said in an email, uh, a whisperer or a community whisperer for mm-hmm. like Al Jazeera, BBC. Um, what does that mean? Were you unfamiliar with those things? Were you researching, you know, uh, foreign affairs? Right. So, um, so my work with, with Al Jazeera for them, um, also with BBC America and, and a few other groups, it's always to go and find the audience where they are and figure out what it is that they need. Sometimes it's technical tools. Sometimes it's editorial advice. Um, but it's always working to find voices that aren't being heard um, and then figure out how to get them to talk to each other. There's so much of this uh, mentality of, of publishing is just you know pushing things out. And now we have to do more listening. So that is part of why I'm interested in making a magazine because, and especially an analog one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's just so, you know, so retro. But, um, but I wanted us to have some kind of experience that everyone can share. So when you open up an issue, then all of a sudden you're there with it. And it's not very long. It's, you know, 40 pages in most of them. There's um, the holiday issue is, is 67 pages, I think. Um, but it's meant to be sort of just a moment that you spend with this thing, right? Um, that's somewhat in, uninterrupted, um, which is part of what I've always tried to do with communities is how do you bring people together to see each other and talk to each other um, in a way that they're not being interrupted. Yeah. All the so time. what's the difference between bring someone together with food and bring someone together with an empty table? Right. Um, so I think with with the table, um, there there's an action that's that's going to happen. You know, with food, we can move from the kitchen to outdoors, outside, whatever. Um, but with the table itself, I think there's this um, there's this understanding that in fact something's going to happen. It's going to be a shared action that we're all going to take together, and we're going to leave a little bit different. Yeah. So do you try to bring people around tables, or bring people around words, magazines? Well, I, I hope ultimately both yeah and the magazine is sort of the beginning of that Uh, because my my main interest is figuring out how we can all eat together uh, more easily and and more safely really Um, because so many of us have things that we we don't eat anymore we're not eating right now while we're training for something and um, and so I always want to be really sensitive to how people aren't eating yeah Um, but at the same time making everybody feel like it's not that you know somebody's eating something special or different yeah you know that we're still together well let's take that word safely Um, you know in in a day and age where things like gluten-free and peanut allergies proliferate uh, you did an issue which I think is number three Mm -hmm. the handbook of food poisoning Starting with something that is a, a lore to a lot of us Americans, pufferfish, you know, uh, or blowfish, you know, a thing that we've always known it to be poisonous, but we don't know that it's actually poisonous. Um, apricot kernels, something that we know but never knew that it contained trace amounts of cyanide. Um, why food poisoning for a food magazine? Right. Well, a lot of it is is resistance. It's, uh, like at the at the beginning of most of the issues, I try to say this this isn't what we're about to do here. Um, there's so many beautiful, glossy food magazines that are recipe driven, and Saucy isn't that. 
Um, I wanted to start with the ways in which we couldn't eat together because of a lack of knowledge that we have. Everybody thought that it was going to be a thrill-seeking issue. You know, what's the scariest, most exotic thing you can eat? Um, But that, you know, that always trends one way and you can't come back from that. But this is something that I hope people will read and pass around and share and keep. Um, It's meant to be collectible because that knowledge is something that even if we don't know anyone who's allergic to sesame right now, that may change in a few years. Um, and often people develop allergies later. So we're always changing in the ways that we eat. Yeah. I mean, I'm lactose intolerant, have a aversion to shrimp, um, which both happened in the past like four or five years. You list the top 10 food allergens, milk, eggs, peanut, tree nuts, fish, shellfish, soy, wheat. I like the idea of it almost being like a process of elimination to create a common denominator. What do you think is like the most common denominator food or thing that we can share you know, as food, as sustenance to kind of equalize. Hmm. Yeah, it's hard to say now. You know, there there used to be so much of, of what I'm I'm beginning with is, you know, what is American food? What does it feel like now, depending on where we are in the country and how we eat? Um, and, and even things like you're on the, you know, on the potato page and we would think, oh, the potato, you know, yeah. French fries are so American. We do potatoes with everything. Um, but actually potatoes can have poisoning within them, right? Um, and, and depending on how they've been stored and kept. Um, so, you know, for me, I really start with, I'm, I'm about to have a dinner party in a couple of weeks. And so I just sent everyone a little thing today and said, what don't you eat? That's where we yeah. begin. Um, and I, I, um, I just put something up on my, my Tumblr blog that was a food and wine pairing chart and giving some context for it. I just said, you know, when I can't figure out what someone might like to eat, I ask them what they like to drink, and we go that way. But it's often elimination. It's often working backwards. Yeah. Um, because it's hard to say what the common denominator is anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. A lot of restaurants also find that to be a compromise and say no substitutions. How do you feel about that? Well, you know, I mean, part of the problem with that statement is that um, sometimes someone is very um, sad about what they can't eat right? Um, it can be quite emotional and it cannot be some sort of, you know, choice that they're making. Um, it can be something that they're, that they're stuck with. And, um, and what bothers me sometimes with that is that then it creates a different atmosphere at the table, um, where everyone's like, Oh, I really want to order that. Yeah. Right. And I, and I hate that when that happens. Well, I mean, pan Asian cuisine since the shrimp, uh, allergy, it feels like wearing a giant scarlet A when I get the allergy menu. And even though, you know, most people are accommodating, I can only eat such a small portion. And yeah, you don't feel like you're part of the conversation that way. Everyone's enjoying one thing. And then, you know, what I have in front of me is good, too, if anyone would like to taste a bite. Yes. Yeah, it's, 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 it's an odd dynamic that happens there. But it, it's funny. With Saucy, are you trying to eliminate... I wouldn't call it the bad, but eliminate the aversions to be able to create clarity or this common ground amongst eaters around, uh, you know, food media. Right. Well, I think the more we talk about things like allergens, many people um, reading issue three, the food poisoning one, didn't know about a lot of those things. Um, and I think the more we talk about it and the more knowledge there is, then it just becomes um, kind of a non-issue because it's like, oh, you know, we'll put these on the side because sometimes people are allergic to them. You don't have to call people out or name yeah. them for it or shame them for it. Um, but it can just be sort of this awareness that I'd like to see. And I think is actually what we really need 
to do. Yeah, I almost like to think of it as modular cooking. Mm-hmm. You know, that you build up a dish and then if you build it in a certain way, you could take things out and it still be stable and still be tasty. Right. Um, obviously, that's a little harder and gives, you know, a little more forethought and a little more work, but it accepts everybody. You know, yeah, it's, it's kind a, of like blood. It's thinking of it as, as like a variation yeah. on a recipe. So the yeah. first issue of Saucy, mm-hmm. which I do not have in front of me, what was the theme? <laughs> I have so many saucies in front of me. It's kind of amazing. <laughs> and we'll talk about texture because you, you say something about it being analog and kind of like championing that. But I mean, it is a really wonderful thing to have a tactile piece of paper in front of you that isn't the same piece of paper you felt everywhere else. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the food poisoning one has, you know, this kind of, you know, compositions notebook feel to the outside. And then number four, the holiday issue has this luscious mat. And Mm. uh, you just pointed out to me, too, as a string of light bulbs that actually do glow, do shine, all hand-painted on. Mm -hmm. And then this crazy, glossy, beautiful black valentine one. I mean, just having those differences in texture, mm-hmm. that, that's something that you don't usually see in magazines. Right, well, and you can really play with it when you have an indie magazine. You can go to the publisher and say, okay, the only thing that's going to stay the same is the logo yeah. and the printing size. Um, and, you know, the second issue of Saucy uh, was on newsprint because I wanted to play with that. And then I went, you know, it doesn't. It still doesn't quite feel right. Yeah. Um, and and then I started printing at this size, and this really works. And and part of the reason why I wanted to start printing um, at this size was I met all these people in the Little Magazine Coalition in Brooklyn, and I had been following some of their work. And I I think Remedy Quarterly is amazing, and I think Put a Egg on It is obviously amazing. Yeah. And that's the size that they print at. And I started going, oh, you could you can do this at this size. And once we move beyond this format that we're used to in newsstands, we start thinking, you know, what really makes sense for the content? Then it can change it. And, and every cover is a little bit different. That third one, the dangerous food one, um, and this is a good Brooklyn story. Um, my friend Jacob, who made the documentary uh, Girl Walk All Day, or the, the film, um, found a, a handbook of food poisoning on the street. <laughs> And he gave it to my friend Audrey and said, you need this. And she's like, oh, I know who really needs this. And then this cover looks a lot like that book that they found. And if you open up um, the front part and and you look at the table of contents and it has kind of that 70s weird font feel to it, that's on purpose. It's meant to feel a little bit like a science textbook. Yeah. So, um, so I can play with that and, and make every issue feel a little bit different because I have that freedom as an indie publisher. But there's an analogous theme, like you said, right. trying to bring people together. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the next idea for an issue or do they just come to you like temporarily? Right. Um, so the next three issues, um, so the Black Valentine just came out last week and then the next issue is um, Movement. Um, and that's going to be, I lived in Miami for a while. It's a very interesting food culture there. Um, and we're actually in their season. Their farmer's markets are happening right yeah. now. Um, so the the June issue, the early summer issue, will be movement with that, with some of the foods from there, um, some amazing uh, people and, and food and culture down there. And then the fall will be modification. Um, and that's going to focus more on the ways that, that we sort of try out different ways of eating for a while. And then um, the winter issue will be gloss. So again, that takes us back full circle to the text and and thinking about food and eating together as a text um, and the different ways that we gloss how we eat. So let's look at Valentine, which just passed. Mm -hmm. And 
is this kind of a somber or morose look at Valentine? What what is this issue? It's about the things that once we see them, they they change our relationship with the people that we're eating with or with the food that we're eating. So I I really take sort of the the tropes um, of of love food. Um, so there's a story about oysters and how that didn't go so, so well. <laughs> um, and there's a story of, um, I'm lighting lingerie on fire in one of the stories and in my oven, um, it's kind of taking that idea of, you know, how, uh, women in New York use their ovens for storage, um, and also lighting things on fire. Um, <laughs> so just taking this, these ideas of like, what, you know, what do we think about for Valentine's? And then w- what if it wasn't beautiful? Um, what if it doesn't feel um, happy and romantic, actually. What's romantic? Yeah. You know, it's funny looking at the back page uh, where you, again, give this prosy recipe. Mm-hmm. Um, and what is it? Is it uh, chicken? It isn't the most beautiful thing in, right. in, in you know, the contemporary sense. Uh, it's deconstructed. Uh, you have bones. You have eaten pieces of, you know, poultry left on the plate. But let's get back to texture. And you talk about an analog magazine, about the varying qualities of paper. I mean, the textural things that happen around chicken, and this might gross people out. I don't care. You know, because raw chicken freaks people out. But cooked chicken, there are so many wonderful and kind of lush textures of that. And you eat it in the glistening and crispy skin and, you know, almost the velvety white meat and uh, the dense or suppleness of, you know, dark meat. Mm -hmm. Those are aphrodisiacs the same as oysters and so it's a textural non-visual thing so it's it's kind of amazing to put that in a visual magazine well and it's also you know those are the final pages at the end of this issue um after you have consumed the entire issue yeah that's really what you're left with is the picked over carcass because that's what it looks like after you've had a dinner party with good friends where you roast a chicken and you open a bottle of wine um i usually you know roast asparagus too depending on the time of year all things that you can eat with your hands and just share um and be sort of you know not not formal about it really fun and really casual and also if you look on the right side of that page um that's that's the chicken liver um on the right side and people um asked me what that was and it it it's part of the reason that it's there because i'm trying to take us closer to the food and kind of examine all parts of it that's what's inside the chicken when you take it you know when you take it out of the packaging the wrapping and you're about to roast it but you wouldn't know that if you don't roast a chicken yeah right it's like what is this thing that's inside of? i know we get so many compartmentalized you know we get breasts we get thighs but to you know know all the innards and offal is a whole other thing and you know you're not going to be served chicken liver next to a roast chicken at a restaurant you're gonna that's going to be you know in a pate or something that's that's an app very compartmentalized right well we're going to take a quick break mm-hmm. come back hear more about the voices that aren't heard in the food world you've been listening to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org we'll be right back today's program has been brought to you by whole foods market are you a locavore our northeast regional forager for whole foods market sure is She spends her time traveling around the New York City metro area sourcing the best new or interesting artisanal and handcrafted local products for our purchasing teams at the local store level. Part of our commitment to our local suppliers includes assisting them with the process of getting their products sold at our stores. Whether it's suggesting packaging designs, pricing, or distribution methods, she's helping some of the area's best new products reach savvy shoppers at Whole Foods Market stores. 
Today, New York. Tomorrow, the world. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. Welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Tokel, here today with Kristen Taylor of TheSaucyMag.com. Is that the... That's the yeah. URL. I, I see the Tumblr account. I see so many things that you do. You're a very active person. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Saucy Magazine, the next couple issues, you gave us a little preview about the overall themes. But movement. How do you define that in the magazine? How do you show movement on a 2D, on a static page? Right. Um, so there is a spread in the Valentine issue. It's it's actually in the oyster part. And it's crazy with bokeh. So I wanted it to feel really, really flashy and sparkly on purpose because that's how we're supposed to feel when we eat oysters. And the story then sort of contradicts that because it isn't sparkly and happy like that. Um, but I think the Miami issue is really going to be all about movement because Miami is so very colorful. And in Miami, people wear sequins, unironically, <laughs> at all hours of the day. Little Meg. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, it's, it's quite amazing. And so, um, so part of the food culture there really sort of caters to that. And thinking about how do you, you, know, how do you serve people something that's really interesting and appetizing um, when they're, they're all about flash. So, um, so movement will be partly like that. Yeah. I also, um, I grew up, um, as a dancer, all, all, you know, the people in my family are dancers. And so, um, so I'm really comfortable with costumes and, and that's a lot of what Miami feels like too. Um, there's a lot of dressing up in many ways. And yeah. so that, that should come out in the issue too. So it'll be playing with depth of focus on food. Um, we're used to really macro shots of food. Um, we're used to really, um, pretty shots where everything is centered or it's right within, you know, those, if you look at the grid on photos, you know, it's, it's going into the, the punctum. Um, and so I want to play with that a little bit and I want some things to feel a little bit out of focus or not quite on the page or a little bit glitchy, uh, because that's interesting and that's making us pause. And that's what I'm hoping that we'll do more of. Yeah. So you talk about movement and you say that you're a dancer. Mm-hmm. Obviously there are a lot of, uh, thoughts on dancers and diets and all this kind of stuff but cooking has a lot of movements to it too uh whether or not it's working in a restaurant working in the kitchen and being able to navigate during service um are there those movements while eating food you know that rote picking up a beer even and you know putting it to your lips or fork and knife in the correct hands are are those things that you're interested in exploring too oh definitely so and you know, most dinner parties have a lot of movement to them. If you ever watch the people who are hosting the party, they're moving around a lot. They're really trying to make sure that 
Um, I just moved into a new apartment, and so I had a housewarming, and, and everyone was was really sort of moving around, and I was circulating between groups and trying to make sure that you know they had an open bottle, and that this group over here had what they needed, and they sort of brought their own desserts, and what was happening there, and where the plates out for that, and so it really is figuring out how does how does everyone relate to everyone else? Yeah, um, and and so I think every time that we eat with other people, there is a movement to it. Even when people decide, you know, they want to take a different table or they want to move it around. Um, I I was with someone one time that would never eat across from me, right? <laughs> he felt it was very confrontational, so he always wanted to eat next to me. So it's, it's always this negotiation of space. Yeah. Then you talk about modifications in the issue after that. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that just builds off the idea of movement because you have this almost way of doing something. And then how do you make iterations of that? What is the modification theme to you? Well, I think I think for me, it's a lot about how do we take something that we know and then make it fit us a little bit better. Sometimes we modify our diet because we're with someone new and we want to you know eat with them or eat like them. And sometimes it's because we're changing our exercise uh, workout regimen and we want to sort of suit it up to that. Um, I think modification for me will be like how do we school ourselves? Um, how do we create something that feels closer um, to what we really want or farther from what we know? Yeah. So how have you modified yourself in the past, either with others or for certain situations? Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's see. Um, I haven't really, I, you know, I haven't been a vegetarian for a very long time, but both of my sisters, as I, as I mentioned, um, we all grew up dancing, um, have been vegan for a while. And, and actually one friend of, of my, one of my sisters, um, only ate five things at total. Yeah. And so in the history of her being only five things, that was it. Yeah. She could only eat five things. If she ate anything else, she would get sick. And so, um, so I cooked for her for a while. Um, when I would visit my sister, um, and cause they were all living in a house together. And, and so it was thinking about things like that situations that are really kind of crazy as far as the yeah. parameters. What were those five things? Now I just can't stop thinking oh, about those. Okay. <laughs> let's see. Well, they're berries. Yeah. Berries were okay. Um, let's see. Uh, no, no cheese. There was no dairy at all. Um, there was some kind of bread. I want to say it was like Ethiopian type of like injera, yeah. something like that. It was a very specific, right? Yeah. And then there was three others that I'm blanking on, but you know, you sort of, you write them down on a piece of paper and you're like, um, how many ways can I combine <laughs> these things? Well, I mean with, I don't know if you watch, you know, food television, you know, with chopped and things on how to break down the most elemental, you know, ingredients and make a beautiful dish about it. Does it make you more creative or does it kind of box you into doing something a little more ordinary yeah, that's always the question because do parameters help us or hurt us yeah i think ultimately they help us because it forces us to think in really clear ways about what we do have you know part of the reason that home cooks have always felt like you know they don't they don't get a fair shake is that they they don't have access to all these different kinds of ingredients so i think that that a lot of that food tv is catering to that um to you know look chefs cook with the same ingredients that you have access to um but I think, I think for me, um, it's more interesting when we think about them not as parameters, really, but as people that we're eating with. Yeah. And what do and don't they eat? So, I always forget the name of this goddamn movie. It's the Peter Sellers movie that has the subtitle, or How I Learned to Love the Bomb. 
um, Doctor Strangelove. Yes. It almost feels like you're 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 eliminating the fear that the subtitle of the saucy series should be or how I learned to love food <laughs> yet again. Because yes. uh, stripping away these fears, uh, not only make you more adventurous. I mean that that's an extreme, but you know uh, introduce you to a new set or a new subset of things that you can introduce into your life, right. you know, bring into your life, and then in that way incorporate a new group of people, a new uh, part of society, a new way of thinking. I think, so. I think thinking is really it too. Um, so much of what I'm working with is always, how do, we, how do we think deeper about this? How do we actually pay attention to what it is that we're eating? Um, for me, it's all about the people and who you're eating with, but also how you're taking care of them and how you're feeding them. So, you know, for example, that carcass or, or even the page that that issue is open to right now over there um, where you have the nutmeg and mace. And, and I found it in a shop and I just went, oh, I finally have found it. Because I <laughs> thought that you couldn't get the nutmeg and mace on top yeah. of each other um, unless you were actually, you know, in the place that it's, it's made uh, or that it's grown. Um, and it's so neat to see these two spices that have this, you know, symbiotic relationship. And that's, you know, one of a few pa- only a few pages in that issue that are kind of sweet, kind of light. <laughs> a friend of mine said, I don't, I don't really know that this is sweet. I said, but, but they're together. They grow together. Mace and nutmeg grow together. And isn't that interesting? And we can cook with them together because they, they grow together. You know, it's not only when, when we're thinking about cooking seasonally and we're trying to cook everything that's coming to the market at the same moment. Um, the same thing happens when we start to look at spices. You know, what grows near each other? Oh, what yeah. grows next to each other? What makes sense? Oh, yeah. Uh, a chef that I work with, Chris Cosentino at San Fran Constancy, says what goes together. What grows together goes together. I mean, that, that is his creed. That is like his ideology. And I mean, I, I dare you to try to find a set of things without going too crazy that don't taste good together that are you know, living and growing and fostering each other. And especially mm-hmm. if they're symbiotic too, you know, right. non-parasitic things. Right. Um, it's a lovely shot of mace, you know, <laughs> and you do all the original artwork for these magazines. Why that singular point of view? Not saying that you're narrow-minded because you are far from that. <laughs> um, but why just your voice? Yeah. Um, for me, this began as a personal project. So when I started Saucy, I, I actually, I'll, I'll tell you the original name. The issue, the first issue was called Cool and Esthete, and no one could say it. Yeah. And my mom was like, did you make up a word? And so I went, okay. Oh, I remember seeing that. Yeah, I'm like, it's like Coalette, Coalette, yeah. I, I couldn't figure out, it was like some atelier fashion designer coming into town or, yeah. Right, no, well, thank you. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean... It, so that was taking people farther away from the actual thing itself, yeah. right? It was making them feel like they couldn't pronounce the name. I was like, this is not cool. Um, so I changed the name. Um, but yeah, I mean, I wanted something that I could just work on and kind of figure out what it was. And then I have a lot of people who I now know who would love to contribute to it. And now I'm almost in a place where I feel like, okay, yeah, that maybe it's time. Yeah. Um, because I do work with, with content and, and, you know, edit material for... <coughs> for other groups and things. And so I'm comfortable with that part, but I just always wanted it to be sort of this quiet thing that I made on my own um, and sort of never expected that more than a few people would read it. <laughs> and then now it, it, it has some momentum. Yeah, no, that's, that's a wonderful coup to you. I mean, <laughs> it's kind of, you've made a living breathing thing and then how do you support that? I mean, how, how, how do you let it continue, you know, out in the world? Yes. Um, and, I just was talking with friends about collaboration and, you know, bringing other people in. And, you know, the clear intention of what you're doing is that. 
and whether or not it's from one person's point of view or one person's voice or, you know, a group, you know, I think it's all the same as long as there is a, a similar and passionate end to that. Um, by doing saucy, has this changed how you eat, how you cook, how you interact with food? Definitely. I have to I have to test all the recipes. So I have people over and, and I test the recipes with them. But also, um, it's made me think in new ways about like the ruts that we can get into when we're only cooking for ourselves or for a few people that we know how they eat. Because I have to think now that more than you know three people read it, that in fact there are people who I don't even know who order the magazine every time. And so I have to think, okay, well, and where do they live in the world? You know, and, and the, you know, there are people in Australia that read it and that's so great. And so it can't be for me, um, totally Brooklyn focused or wherever I'm living. Um, it can only be my stories because that's what I have to tell, but it, it does need to be something where I'm always trying to explore, um, kind of what's beyond, um, my purview. Yeah. Are there other food books, cookbooks, authors, you know, literature that you kind of take cues from in that matter? Well, uh, Emily Balls, the brilliant Emily yeah. Balls is one of my good friends. And so she always inspires me. Um, and when she says, go eat somewhere that the chef is on fire or whatever, then I go. Um, and, you know, and then I'm, I'm just beginning to find out about what a great community uh, the, the food tech world is here in New York. And then also being part of the Little Magazine yeah. Coalition again. Can you actually define what food tech is? I keep on hearing this word and I, I am fascinated by it. What is that community? Right. Um, well, it's it's mostly in New York, which is really neat. And it's everyone that's making things with tech. They're mostly apps to that has something to do with how we eat. So it's everything from like recipe sorting to um, there's a wonderful group called Plow. And so there you can basically get um, the food directly from farmers. It's like a CSA, only you're picking the quantities and they work with different vendors Um and, and everybody that's thinking about how do we rejigger the supply system, but how do we make it efficient and effective? Um, and often tech is a good way to do that. So it's, it's really exciting to watch. Um, there's a really great blog called Food Tech Connect um, that kind of has the latest from that world. And it's not just for people who are into tech or who are making tech apps, even though New York is becoming this very tech city. Yeah. Um, but it's actually just for everybody that eats. Yeah. So that's fine. And how does that differ from, you know, the, the zine world you mentioned remedy quarterly, put an egg on it. Mm-hmm. Is it a similar community? Is it a similar, you know, uh, goal? I think so. You know, all of the different magazines have a different idea of what they're doing. So, you know, so remedy comes from this idea of like, how can we know more, you know, about kind of community cookbooks and um, put an egg on it is, um, and, and remedy is also about like, how do you heal yourself, you know, through food um, and then put an egg on it, explores these like crazy places and it has this beaut. it's printed on green paper. So it's beautiful. So that's, it's a very particular type of view. Um, and, they, I think like me there and, and with Saucy, they're thinking more about how do we get people to um, to think deeply about food worlds that they don't know 
Um, and I think that, well, I know that those magazines go everywhere as well. So, so they're also reaching people in different areas. With the food magazine world, with the zine world, um, there's, there's kind of a Brooklyn group. And then there's also a really neat Portland group. And there's a Toronto group. And so all of, there are these little clusters. And there are people who are in touch. But when we're in our process, we don't compare notes or spreads or anything quite yet. Um, we're really supportive of each other. But it, it's still very much um, individual editorial that then comes together in a geographic place. Yeah. Yeah. So say if there was a place and a, a menu, what would it be that brought all those zines together from Portland, from Toronto? Yeah. What is that common ground? What is the common ground? I think maybe it's matte paper. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think it's, it's everything that doesn't, it just doesn't feel like something that you can pick up and just look at that's just food porn. Yeah. It's something where you really you you hear a voice and the food seems real and you know that it was on a real table. Yeah, are, are there foods are there, you know, recipes that you see throughout all these different magazines that are analogous? Hmm. I think everybody does seasonal things um and and I it's funny, I used to look and watch and go, okay, here's a really esoteric ingredient in Gourmet Magazine. This will show up in Bon Appetit in you know 18 months. And in the meantime, so is going to do this with it. Um, but I, I don't really see that with food zines right now, um, mostly because there's a lot of thematic things that happen. So in a given issue, um, the recipes, even you know at the back of Diner Journal, another wonderful food zine, um, they'll be all around a theme or all around a spread. Um, so people seem to be less concerned with, oh, this is a holiday issue. We need to have some roasts and some sides and some big desserts that are sparkly. Um, and, and I think it's much more about like when food news happens or when everybody's playing with, you know, making your own cheese, you'll often see that move through the different scenes. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, you're talking about trends and sometimes you read a zine and you don't realize how far ahead of the curve it kind of is. And, you know, that, that's my big toast, the zines. And I read a lot of them, uh, most of which you mentioned. Um, And you do, you seem that trending, but I don't feel like zines are trending. In, 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 in a good way, in a good sense, that I feel like the archivalness, you know, these are things that I want to hold on to. And believe you me, I have stacks of, you know, paper, <laughs> lots of matte paper at the house. Um, but You the, must have an actual closet in New York. No, no, they just climb the walls. They look like pillars. They're okay. almost load-bearing <laughs> at this point. But these are things that I hold on to in a different way, you know, uh, as, as reference points and not necessarily I something I cook with or interact with in that way, but something that, you know, bestills uh, an idea, an ide- ideology, and you reference, or having it there is, 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 is soothing to you. I think so. It's, it's kind of like when you, when you watch a movie, you know, from 20 years ago, and it has that very particular feel, that, co- you know, that color or that lack of color. Um, it's like it's saturated in that um, that way that we now see on an Instagram filter. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think when we look back, we'll see that in, in the zines. We'll remember what it felt like to be in the kitchen at that moment. Yeah, it definitely has. What is that? A zeitgeist. Mm. True, true. Um, lastly, your favorite food word. My favorite food word. Oh, this is very difficult. You can give me a smattering. You can give me a poo-poo platter of food words if you like. <laughs> and it can't be poo-poo platter. Well, I will say that right now, everybody that I love and care about in the food world 
is sort of um, on a mission to make people stop using juice as a verb. <laughs> I was just in L.A., so I think that's part of well, it. I like, uh, you know, with the theme of what you do for your magazine, that you did another process of elimination. <laughs> and told me the word that you didn't like. Um, perfect. Wonderful. Try to get juice out of there for you. We'll see what we can do. Great. The Saucy Mag, Kristen Taylor. Thank you so much. Always looking forward to the next issue. Thanks for having me. Excellent. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.